What's going on, everyone? You're tuned into the Founder Hour. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we had the pleasure of sitting down with Josh Luber. He's a founder of StockX, which started off as a stock market for buying and selling sneakers and has quickly turned into the stock market of things, including watches, clothing, handbags, and more recently, trading cards. It's truly one of the most innovative companies I've seen. So we were excited to dive in to learn about Josh's personal background and his various business ventures up until launching StockX in 2015 and growing it into a company worth over $1 billion in just three years. We talk about everything from Josh's formative years and how going to law school helped him become a better problem solver, how the industry for sneakers and trading cards has evolved over the last 30 years, the insane story of how he met Dan Gilbert, the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers and founder of Quicken Loans, who he ultimately co-founded StockX with out of pure serendipity, why building a stock market model makes so much sense for the business, why he replaced himself as CEO in 2019, and what he envisions the future of the company, as well as e-commerce and new product launches in general to look like. If you've ever wondered why sneakers and trading cards are so valuable and resell for thousands, if not millions of dollars, Josh breaks it all down for us. We started off the conversation by learning about Josh's passion for sneakers and trading cards at a young age and how that ultimately played a role in him eventually starting StockX. Here we go. Um, you know, you know, starting the beginning, um, but giving a tie to like the, the present, you know, I, I may have only been right about two things in my entire life, but they happen to be the two things that I was most passionate about as a 12 year old kid have become the two biggest things in, in culture and commerce today being sneakers and the other, which is about to be is, is trading cards, baseball cards, basketball cards, et cetera. And so for me and, um, and, a, a overwhelming majority of uh, American male entrepreneurs um, in my generation, right? I'm 42. Um, we started with with uh, with baseball cards, um, and um, you know, uh, you guys know um, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. Right. So, um, so I, I met Gary for the first time about five years ago, right when I was starting StockX, and um, and he's a couple years older than me. And the first time we ever met, uh, by the way, he's he's just as intense as person on his videos and we met at this very new york lunch counter i mean super old school super tight so we're sitting and he's like you know right next to me sits down i was there first he sits down right next to me afterwards and and uh and the first thing he ever said to me he looks at me he goes you're about my age baseball cards are candy and i went oh i was like well both actually right so you know my first my first uh, you know, startup was I used to hop the fence behind my house and go buy bubble gum at the grocery store and I could buy four packs for a dollar and I could sell it for 25 cents a piece or a dollar pack in school. And that was the first business. And, um, and it was uh, ended abruptly because you weren't allowed to chew gum in school when I had 132 packs of, of bubble gum confiscated by the social studies teacher and got the only detention I ever got uh, in my entire life. So that was the, the start of it. Um, but then you very quickly end up in, in baseball cards and like, but that was the hustle for, for 13 year old kids then in 1989 and 1990, as opposed to today where, where kids can not only, they can create apps, they can do whatever, but a lot of them are, are flipping sneakers. So it's not without irony of, of sort of coming full circle, but you know, at the time I was just a huge collector of, of baseball cards and, um, and sneakers. And, um, and that was a time when the word entrepreneur didn't exist. The internet didn't exist. Um, so it was it was a whole lot different. But my father was a lawyer. I always was very, you know, academic, you know, focused. And um, and I always just kind of knew I would end up in business. But again, like the idea of like being an entrepreneur didn't didn't really exist. Um, but that was it. Right. And in, in the beginning. So it wasn't until um, 
really after I graduated college and um, uh, I took my first job at college after college and I worked for a furniture company and that company went, went through bankruptcy and they came through and they were laying off uh, basically the whole company and I got laid off and I was a very naive 23 year old kid and I'd never heard of unemployment and they said, you know, yeah, you get, you know, $323 a week. Um, and I was like, for, for nothing? They're like, yeah, you just file for unemployment. Get I was like, this is amazing. So uh, so I, I partied for a couple of days. And then, you know, I kind of came to and, and one of my friends said, hey, you know that business that we're always talking about doing? Why don't we do it? And that was my first startup. And it was essentially uh, Geek Squad before Geek Squad. It was home computer consulting, home computer repair. We'd go into to you know, little ladies' houses and, and, you know, plug in their computers or troubleshoot their printer or set up wireless networks. This was like 2000, 2001 after I graduated college. And, um, and that was the, the first taste in sort of a professional life of saying, hey, um, you know, this is what I want to do. You know, I want to I be an entrepreneur. I want to start businesses. And that was the first one. But we go down that path or you can go back into others. I'll stop and, and say, but that was kind of the, you know, the start of an entrepreneur in the 80s and 90s. I know you eventually got, uh, you know, went to law school and got your law degree, and I think you got your um, business degree as well, you know, MBA. Um, what did was that after, you know, the this like kind of geek squad concept? Um, and what did you do in between until that point? And and what was your ultimate vision like for your career? Did you like did you want to be a lawyer like your dad, or was it was it more so you wanted to make them happy, and that's why you were doing it? Like what what was the reasoning behind it? Yeah, you know, so um, I grew up in Philly. I went to college in Emory in Atlanta. Um, and, um, you know, like a lot of kids, Emory was the best school I could get into. It was a very good school, but it's not, you know, Ivy league. It's not, you know, um, but it's still a very good school. And, and so I was always, you know, very just sort of like, this is what you do, right. You're kind of academic focused and go down that path. And, um, but again, like just, I, I, so I graduated college in 1999 and I always think that if I had been four years younger or four years older, my life would have been massively different. Just thinking about, the entrepreneurial opportunities that exist. If I was four years younger, I probably hit the first internet, you know, uh, crash.com, all of that. I was completely oblivious to it being in college at that time, right? It all happened and, and basically ended before I even left college. And if I was four years younger, I would have probably hit the next wave of, of internet entrepreneurs. So my first business, my first startup, which again, you know, happened very much um, opportunistically as, um, you know, as I basically just didn't have anything to do and was living on unemployment, um, was a, a farthest thing from a tech business. I mean, it was a, it was a consulting business, happened to be around computers, but it was the farthest thing from it. You were so, helping the tech people who were going through the who were going through the rough times uh, to, to yeah. get them through it. Well, it so uh, it's unbelievable that that's literally how the business started because it was me, uh, one other guy, and then the computer guy. And the computer guy, he had graduated. Uh, same, he was two years behind me in school, close friend of mine. He had graduated and he was hired by like Deloitte or SAP or one of these large tech consulting companies. And the economy took a downturn and his start date got pushed back like six or nine months or something like that. And he needed something to do. So we basically built this business around him. We built the business and he was the one who would go to people's houses and fix their computer. We eventually figured out how to hire more people like him, but it was all because of that, because we had this opportunity where we had this asset, this, this very overqualified tech guy who could very clearly go into people's houses and fix their computer. And then we, we built it off of that. So it really was. Um, but doing that, I knew I was like, all right, 
this is what I want to do. Like I didn't, I didn't under even know what it was, but I was like, I want to start and run businesses. And I made less money than I ever made and worked more hours than I ever worked. We ran the thing literally out of my bedroom uh, in an apartment where two other guys lived. Um, but um, that was clearly what I wanted to do. However, I was already on the path of applying for grad school. You know, I, I was doing this while I was at the furniture company and I was studying for GMAT and I always assumed I'd go to, to business school. And this is a true story and it, and it sounds I don't know what it sounds. I don't know what it says about me, but I had taken the LSAT the summer before because I thought I could beat my friend in the LSAT. He was going to law school and I was just a competitive asshole and was like, I'm going to be able to beat you in this. And so I studied a little bit. I didn't beat him. I got pretty close and I had a, but I had a really good score. And, um, and, but it was my exposure at this furniture company when it was going through bankruptcy, where I was at the epicenter. I was a, I was a merchant and it was, it was me and one other guy. And when you're going through bankruptcy, the merchants are the epicenter of the whole thing, because you've all of these furniture manufacturers that have sold us this product. And they're the ones that, that essentially get screwed out of the money and they're trying to recoup their money. Whereas we're also trying to get product to be able to sell. So we became like the epicenter of the whole bankruptcy um, scenario. And, um, it, a bankruptcy is the natural intersection of business and law. Okay. So this, these things happened in retrospect, maybe serendipitously, um, but happened very organically. And so I had been exposed to law through my father, my friends. It was a very, you know, professional Jewish thing to, you know, to be a part of as growing up in, in the Northeast. And, um, and so, but the, it was the bankruptcy expo that really, so I had this good LSAT score. I really enjoyed it. I was going back to business school anyway. And, um, and so I applied to both and I was able to go to a, a joint program at Emory. So I wasn't leaving Atlanta and it was a joint JD MBA program where I could get both degrees in three and a half years. And, um, and honestly, like it was the best thing I ever did because law school is you either hate it or you love it. And like, I loved it. It was, it is a, it is direct competition. It is. Uh, an intellectual challenge you're putting in because it's a straight bell curve. Like for you to get an A, somebody else has to get a D. Like it's um, so it, it's pretty like cutthroat. Um, but it's also really, really genuinely intellectually stimulating and, and interesting. Um, and so um, I was always thought that I would just kind of go to, to business school. Um, but I ended up doing that. I met my wife in law school. So that that was good. And um, but I, I, I did really well in law school. So I had this opportunity where coming out of grad school, I was like, oh, I'm definitely just going to go back and start companies. But I did really well. I was kind of at the top of my class in law school. And I was like, well, I'll never have another chance to go be a lawyer. They don't hire first year law associates after they've gone and worked in startups for five years. They hire them directly out of law school. And it was 2006. It was like the top of the market. Um, and the starting salary was, I was like $150,000. I think I got two raises before I started. I think when I signed, it was 100 and the market was moving so fast. I got a raise to a 125 and then 150 before I even started. And so, and I went to work at, at one of the largest and, and kind of most prestigious firms in Atlanta called Alston and Bird in the bankruptcy group, right? Which is kind of how this all comes, comes full circle. And, um, and so I did that and I really enjoyed it. Um, really interesting work. But the whole time I was there, I was working on a startup on the side, like the whole time. And, um, and the second that, that startup was ready, um, I was, I was out the door. So I was there for 10 months, I think. Um, 
and everybody kind of just assumed. I, I think I was the first one, like in my law school class, to like uh, to bounce, and um, and everybody kind of assumed that like, oh, you like you hate big firm life and all the reasons why people quit their their law school jobs. But no, like I just I didn't want my boss's job. I wanted to get back into startups. Um, I enjoyed it, but it was it was clearly like not what my career was going to be. But I'm really glad that I went to law school, I and mean, for no other reason, than I met my wife. Um, but I also do think that it's been a really great grounding, you know, even today to be able to, you know, how you work with, with lawyers and outside counsel and everything else is, um, is super beneficial from that. And, um, and if nothing else, it also gives you a little bit of cred when, uh, you know, when, when you look like me and dealing with, uh, with lawyers and outside counsel and, uh, and they, they find out that I went to Emory law school and had journal articles published and worked at Alston and Bird. So it's, uh, it's good. Too. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great story. And unlike you, I hated my law school experience, but, you know, mm-hmm. like you said, you either love it or you hate it. And, um, you know, looking back, I think, you know, I would have done things differently and probably gone to business school uh, as opposed to law school just because of how my mind functions and, you know, what I enjoy. But regardless, you know, I think it does give people or, you know, like it gives you more, I guess, of this, uh, I don't know, professional, you know, I don't know, experience that you might have not got, not might have not gotten uh, anywhere else and people take you a little bit more seriously. I don't know how much more seriously yeah. they take you. You can speak <laughs> their language. I always say like the two things that taught me were it was a new language and it taught you how to think yeah. um, and how to really Absolutely. define and you know pinpoint what problems are. And, you know, clearly as somebody who's in the startup world like yourself or was, and now you're in the business world, um, problems come up all the time, right? How do you think that that experience played into you being a better startup founder? And not just because you had already done it before law school, but how did it improve um, the way you became as an entrepreneur and a founder? Yeah, it's so it's a really good question. And your points on law school are, are dead on um, it. Obviously, the the, the transformation in, in terms of being able to really critically um, think re- reading and writing all of the stuff that that, you know, we sort of take for granted um, was extraordinary. But, you know, I look back now and I don't think I know. You know, I've been through some some tough times at different companies, and uh, the past year at StockX has been uh, has been crazy. But I don't think I've ever had more call it professional stress in my life than first year of law school, right? And right. and that ecosystem and that bubble, particularly first semester finals and all that. And um, you know, um, I don't know if I said it when we were coming on, but you know, when everyone anyone asked me to say, "Hey, how you doing?" my, I always say, unbelievable. I'm amazing. Uh, and, uh, and I started that, um, in first semester, uh, finals in law school because everybody was so stressed out. And it was just like, it was the most, it was suck. And I was just like, I don't want to fucking hear it anymore. Like, just like, I'm amazing. I don't, you know, and like everyone's stressed out. Everyone was dealing with it. And like, I, you know, like I said, I, I still like to just inflexibly stay it today, but like going through that is a, um, you know, I, I don't, I hate to say this to, to in any way uh, uh, minimize like um, like military, but like that was like the boot camp version of business, right? Of of just of just call professional professional business law, you know, business whatever it is. But like being in that environment because it's first of all it's it's the the political dynamics are extraordinary because it's completely cutthroat where it's a strict bell curve, but you have study groups and you have your friends and so you're working with people right. and then. 
you know, and that you have a lot of people that are, are dating or couples. And I mean, it is like high school, like you're in this bubble and you're with nobody else. And I mean, there's lockers. I mean, it's literally high school. And, um, yep. and so all of it, you know, when you look back uh, of, it really was a, a, a version of a, of a boot camp that, um, has, right. has served me well in a lot of ways, you know, the, the intellectual part of it, but also the social part, the stress part of it. And, um, and I look back and, and a, frankly, you can't, and you can't replicate it. That's the thing. You couldn't, you couldn't make that happen even if you wanted to. And Josh, that's a great point because I feel like, you know, whether it's in law school or other grad school programs or whether it's in a business setting, your mentality, right? And that's kind of what you're talking about here. Your mentality is very important because everyone's going through the same shit. Everyone's studying the same material. Everyone's taking the same test. Everyone has the same professors, more or less. It's a very controlled setting, right? In life, it's a little different where it isn't controlled. There are things that are thrown at you and there, there are unexpected things that happen. There's coronavirus that comes through in California. There's an earthquake every once in a while that just kind of throws everybody off the loop. Yeah. And so it's a very controlled setting. But the one thing that you can control is how you look at life, right? And how you look at problems and that positivity, right? Do you think that that's something you learned from law school? Did you pick that up from somebody else? Where did you suddenly say, you know what? I am unbelievable. You know, I'm doing great. I'm doing amazing. Everything's going great. And how does one do that in their daily life? Because there are struggles. Everybody's kind of struggling, especially right now. Um, how do you kind of get out of that? How do you get out of that zone and say, you know what? Coronavirus, screw it. I know it's, it's already there. I can't control it. What can I control? How do I control it? Yeah. So that's a good question. You know, the, so positivity, which you brought up is, is it is massively important. And, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia, um, sort of the highlight of my fandom as a Philadelphia fan uh, was um, 2001 when the Sixers got to the NBA Finals uh, and then won one game and then got swept the next four games by the Lakers. But that one game, that one, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan. And at the time, Pat Croce was the owner of the Sixers and his whole thing was positive mental attitude and you get on that path. But, you know, I almost feel like um, um, the – the ability to, to understand really how you can perform under pressure is what you're, what you're trying to get to. And, and, you know, you can't replicate that. Um, and you're going to have scenario times in your life where you have, you know, you have pressure, but you still have to perform. And, and it's not like a test, like where, you know, whatever, 92% is an A, like, no, like, no, like you have to be right. You have to, you can't be wrong, right. you know, in, in, in the things you're doing. And, um, but that also only comes from from repetition and practice and 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 doing it. You're only gonna. When I was starting my first startup, um, someone in the startup community had said to me, "said you know, you can't use what you learn until the next one, right?" And he's like, Here, "like here's like the obvious example. Like in your first startup, you want to go create a logo for the company. You probably spend three times as much money. You hire the wrong designer. You you don't know what you're doing." But now you have a logo, so you don't have to do that anymore. So it's not until the next startup you create the next logo that now you know. Look, here's how you do it, and, and you go through that. So you know it is it is practice, it is repetition, and and it but it is the more times that you can put yourself in that scenario where there's real pressure to try to perform, you can understand it at what level you can do that. Um, and but the the flip side of that is to understand the consequences or the lack thereof. Right? Uh, my kids are are eight and five. My daughter my daughter will be eight in a month. My son's five years old and I found my old Sega Genesis and I set up my old Sega Genesis with Sonic the Hedgehog and, and all that. I, I set it up for myself and, um, and then they, it's their favorite thing in the whole world. Right? So they never played video games before and they would get so distraught when they would 
die in Sonic. I mean, to the point that like we almost had to stop it. So we, we started this kind of like mantra. It's like, what happens when you die in Sonic? And the answer is nothing. You just, you start another game. Like nothing happens. It's fine. You just keep going. And so like that becomes part of it too, is like, well, what happens if, you know, if you don't do this? So there, there's a level of pressure in law school because, you know, people look at it as well. If I don't do good in this test and I don't do good this semester, then I don't have a good class rank, then I don't get a good job, then my whole career is ruined. Like that's the mentality it puts you through. And honestly, like there's very few things in life that are that, that's real by the way, because like to, to some extent, right? Not that you can't be successful, but in terms of like one test will screw you for a whole semester, screw you for your whole class rank. And, and so that's real, but there's not a whole lot of things in life that are actually that, you know, impactful. Like most of the stuff's like Sonic, it doesn't matter. You pick it up and, and go do the next thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you were uh, at the firm or just kind of throughout your early, early life, um, what was it about starting your own business that you liked so much? Like what was going through your mind? What were the thoughts that you were having? What was the motivation for not wanting to work somewhere and actually wanting to build your own thing? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I started the thing in my bedroom and, uh, and I would wake up in the middle of the night and, um, and just go to my desk and, and start, you know, start working. Like, for I, I didn't plan it, right? Like those things would, would just happen. And, um, you know, and I might get up at, at like 3.30 and then all of a sudden I just work in and all of a sudden it's nine and you're just, you just keep working like through the day. And, um, and so it was very organic in terms of just like, oh, like this is what I want to be doing. Like the level of um, motivation that just organically came by it being my own thing um, and having full control over it. And, and by the way, you know, full, um, you know, I won't say responsibility, but like, if I don't do it, then it's not going to get done. But in the same thing, it's like, what am I doing here sleeping? Like I could get this done. And, you know, like that first company, like I made no money. Um, you know, I didn't pay myself. I was living off unemployment and it wasn't, you know, wildly successful. I ended up selling the, the customer list when I went back to, to law school. I think it was for like 30 grand or something like that. Um, but it was that experience of just like every day, I never once in that entire time running that company thought, oh shit, I got to go to work or, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's the difference between every day being like, ah, crap, like it, you know, it's, it's 7 PM already, as opposed to be like, when's it going to be 7 PM? I'm like, we've all been in jobs, you know, where you're just watching the clock and waiting for it to be, you know, it's like, oh man, it's 5 PM. And then clock starts going slower and slower. And like, that's the worst, that's the worst. And so yeah. It was that, right? It was, it was, it was that. And every startup I've ever done has, is like that. Every startup is, you know, I, I can't wait. Like Mondays are, Mondays are the best day. Fridays are the worst day, right? Um, and that's just, yeah. yeah. So, so tell us what the startup was when you were um, at the law firm, you know, 10 months in or so you, uh, you started something. What was it? Yeah. So, you know, so this point, so I, I joined the law firm. So, Go back to grad school in 03, uh, graduate in joint program in 06, and I start a law firm in early 2007. So now I've watched the second wave of, of internet happening. And I'm like, all right, well, you know, I got to create a, a tech company. And what had happened was my last semester of grad school, I basically didn't have any friends left because all the people I'd started with in both law school and business school had graduated. So I was kind of on my own. And I put together a group of people. It was two of my previous startup partners from, from first company, which was called Tech Experts. That was the home computer company. And two other guys I knew who were very sort of entrepreneurial minded. And we would meet on like Saturdays and just 
toss around business ideas, basically kind of looking for startup ideas. And, um, and we went through all different iterations. And I, I think one of the ones that was most, um, uh, you know, if, if one hit, if we thought one had like real potential, we'd all go back that week and do some research on it and take different parts of work and figure out whether it was legit. There was one that we felt was really promising. Uh, it was called, it was called porn swap. And the idea was now keep in mind, this is 2005, 2006. The idea was, this is before streaming and before this, that, um, that a lot of men have DV, porn DVDs that are old to them, but they're new to somebody else, but nobody throws them away. Right. And so there's gotta be a market to be able to, to, to swap DVDs and, and create this. And, um, on a business side, like, first of all, obviously, you know, streaming porn is, I mean, you know, it's a massive business and it hadn't, you know, hadn't been there yet. So we would have been, been put out of business in, you know, in a year or two by streaming anyway, by, you know, by it basically internet porn, but like the business idea was there and we all got hung up on like, who was going to be the face of this business, you know? And, uh, you know, so anyway, fortunately a better idea came along and we didn't have to answer that question or go tell our parents that we were going to start porn swap. So the business was one of the guys it's in the funny, group. Sorry, sorry it's, like you said, it's like a business that's so profitable and there's so much opportunity, but no one wants to do it because of the, the yeah. stigma or like, like you said, no one wants to be the face of it. Like, oh, that guy, yeah, that guy got rich off of porn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, does anybody yeah. know the founder of Pornhub? I mean, I don't know. No, I mean, but it's not. I'm sure that guy is fucking loaded. Right. I'd love to have him on the show. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, you know, I, uh, I'm, yeah. So anyway, um, one of the guys in the group uh, owned a bar. So he was, like me, a, a retired lawyer. He was a lawyer uh, and opened up a bar in the basement of a Mexican restaurant in our neighborhood. And, um, and he was using MySpace to staff his bar. Um, now, you think of this. This is, you know, Facebook had started, but really was still just local in colleges. It was still private. You couldn't get into it. Um, you know, people were, had been using Friendster, but MySpace was, was what, you know, and so he was literally using MySpace to manage his staff. And so the idea was, he's like, well, th clearly this isn't built for this, but he's like, what if we actually took the, the, the value of a social network and made it for business for the purpose of, um, managing, uh, a staff that is, uh, geographically dispersed. So, you know, in, you know, if you go to a, pre-quarantine, you go to StockX office, you know, we're all at the same, and we're all in the same building and we're all on Outlook or whatever it is. But in the restaurant industry, you might have 10 people that are working this shift, but there might be 50 people that work at that restaurant. They're just on different shifts and we're not there. They're, they're working other shifts at other restaurants that are just geographically dispersed. So the company was called Servinity, S-E-R-V-I-N-I-T-Y, Servinity. And the idea was to some level of serenity to the, the service industry and how you manage the service industry. And it was really focused on this. We, we essentially built a social network from scratch because that's, we didn't have any other options at the time and, but tailored it for managing uh, restaurant and bar staff. Um, there was a function where we would like, you could, you could push your, t the schedule out to people's text message, right? Today, that's an app, right? I mean, in 2009, that's an app, but we started this business in the end of 2006 where the iPhone hadn't even come out yet, right? So just where we were in the technology landscape was just extraordinarily different from where you would actually solve this problem today. Um, and 
we build a we build a technology product. We we for the first time we raised some money for the for the for tech experts. We didn't need to raise any money. It was a consulting business. You know, we had we had customers on day one, but we raised some money. Friends and family, I went out and and raised two hundred thousand dollars, largely from people that I knew. Uh, build a technology product and then went out to go to market to it. And um, we were in the middle of raising kind of our call it our our Series A for the purpose of launch and then to to grow the business in the summer of 2008. So by the way, so you start in 2006, I'm doing this the entire time I'm at the law firm. In January of 2008, I leave Austin and Bird. So it's been, I think it's been 10 months. And um, and now we're like, all right, heads down, uh, gonna go raise money to launch the, launch the business. And, um, and we were doing that in summer of 08. And, um, and we had the round basically structured. We knew who the lead was gonna be. And then September of 2008, and the whole world collapsed. And you know, our tiny little deal fell apart. And um, I ended up, um, you know, cutting back because I was the only one that took a salary. I think my salary was 60 grand a year. And um, you know, and we tried to just sort of make a go and do something with the assets, given that we had like no money to really launch the business. And um, and it didn't work out. And we ended up shutting it down in early 2009. And but the reality is that the crash saved us from losing way more money um, because the technology wasn't right. Like you build that with an app. It was, it was, we didn't know what we we're doing from a technology standpoint anyway. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why that business wasn't going to work. Um, so, you know, in retrospect, I'm kind of glad that, you know, cause I had to, I, I remember the day I remember exactly where I was, where I picked up the phone and called every single investor and told them, you know, and there was all chunks of like five, ten, twenty thousand dollars, but these were friends, family, my grandfather, and said, "Hey, you know, thank you so much, but you know, your money's gone and it's not coming back." And um, and also, you know, this was January of two thousand nine. You know, go and almost to a person, every person was more concerned with me and going into what was essentially the worst job market of of my life at that time, and um, and what that was going to look like. But um, that was. I still have that list. I still know who invested, how much money and part of it. I mean, there were people that I went to law school with and people I went to business school with. Um, and, uh, and going through that of like completely losing everyone's money and going through that process is, um, is extraordinary. Um, but it, uh, it also ended up putting me on the path to the next thing, which made most sense because if that company had been successful, if it had gone longer, I wouldn't have had the next opportunity, which was as I was shutting down that company, a classmate of mine from business school approached me and said, Hey, I heard you're shutting down your company. You should come work with me at IBM. And I said, bro, I was like, I don't think you get it. Like my company has four people. IBM has 400,000. Like I'm good. Like, uh, you know, it's like, no, he's like, this is a, a good job. It's, you know, come talk. And so one conversation led to another, led to another. And I ended up taking this job, moving from Atlanta to New York to work at IBM as a strategy consultant and do real high level strategy work like BCG or Bain that, had I gone just to business school, had I not gone and taken that initial law school job, my initial business school job probably would have been as a strategy consultant at, at one of those firms like that to do that level of work. Um, and it was nice is because it was IBM and because it was internal, I had to move to New York, but I didn't have to live on the road. So I got to move to New York, which I'd never lived there before, and um, and go work at IBM. And, and that leads to a lot of other things. But um, that, you know, the first company Tech Experts was uh, I mean, it was real, but it was, it was one step above like a lemonade stand really, uh, for the sophistication of the business and what it was. And, you know, 
Servinity was real. I mean, we raised money, we built a product, we just didn't know what we were doing. And, um, and then we hit, you know, really bad economic times that, that changed the trajectory. And all those things build in, in terms of what you learn and, and how you build to, to the next one and the next one. And Josh, before we kind of go and delve deeper into IBM and the, your experience there and what comes after, you know, early on in the episode, you talked about sneakers, you talked about trading cards, and I haven't heard about that in the last 20, mm-hmm. 25 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. You know, did that just die off while you went to college and law school and, you know, were a lawyer and then you know, started a company? Or was that still in the background? Was that still kind of just there? It's a really good observation and end point because, look, you know, there's nothing, you know, trading cards, put that aside because basically what happened was the trading card industry just completely collapsed in the mid 90s. And I kind of walked away from it then as a lot of people did. But sneakers, I was always obsessed with sneakers, all dating back to, you know, when I was probably eight, nine years old. And I was always buying sneakers. I was always wearing sneakers. I was always trying to buy more. But, you know, uh, and but at every turn from a career and business standpoint, I almost intentionally avoided going into sneakers, right? I almost intentionally avoided mixing my, my personal passions with business because that's just not what you did at the time. Like by doing that, it felt like I'd be creating a, a business just as an excuse to play with sneakers, right? Um, it just didn't feel professional. It didn't feel like what you're supposed to. So even though I was getting into the restaurant industry, which I knew nothing about, computer consulting, which I knew nothing about, building tech products, which I knew nothing about, but I just felt like that was from a business standpoint that that was better what I should be doing. So it's not without irony that, that you know, or perhaps, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, direction that later the company that becomes the most successful is when I finally do merge my personal passions with, uh, with business. But at the time, it was still just very much me on the side. You know, I was like the only guy showing up at IBM wearing, wearing sneakers and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I was about to say. Sorry, I was about to say. Like you know, that the, that period of like 2006 to 2009, 10. I remember because I was in high school at the time. That was like the heyday of. I remember like the Jordans and people waiting in line at these retail mm-hmm. stores. It was back then, you know, the, these these shoes were dropping at like Foot Locker or here or there, and it was it was crazy. Like the sneaker industry was just booming at that time. Um, so I, I can imagine it was something that was like in your mind, but you sort of were still, you know, like. Given the circumstances, you you know you took a job at IBM. So I guess tell us a little bit about how that experience shaped um, yeah. what came after. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and last point on sneakers. I mean, literally the first job out of college I had um, when I worked at the furniture store. I mean, the first thing I did after I got my first paycheck was go to the mall and buy my first pair of Jordans. Right, like that was what <laughs> what you did. I basically waited like my whole life, and my mom would never buy me Jordans. That you know I'd go buy a pair of Jordans. So um, you know, but so I go to IBM. I started in like early, uh, like mid 2010. And um, I very quickly went from, I thought I knew a lot about data work to now I know a lot about data work because like any other, you know, first year consultant sort of get thrown into the deep end and have to do a lot of Excel work and a lot of, of data work. And um, one, uh, I, I liked it. Um, it was it was interesting. Um, and two, um, Totally by chance, I was assigned a project, my first project, to build a very complicated data model that ended up being um, 
it was, I, we wrote a white paper about it. It was, it was very, it was like a big deal. And I sort of became known for it. And, um, but it was also really fun to be able to, to, to all the things you could do with Excel when you really know how to use Excel really. And I didn't have any other data tools. And this was also back in the days when Excel was still 60,000 rows and very limited compared to what you can do with it today. So, um, if you're a startup guy and you go work for IBM, the first thing you do is you start working on shit on the side because that's what you do if you're, you're a startup guy. And so the first startup that I did, so I moved to New York and um, about, I don't know, five, six months after um, I'm, I'm there and working, I discovered a company called Turntable.fm. Do either of you guys remember this company? Okay. Yep. So Turntable.fm was an absolute rocket ship and, and unbelievable. And I just happened to stumble upon it like two weeks after it launched. And I was like, this is unbelievable. And, and for, for everyone who, who doesn't know, Turntable was essentially, um, it was, it was a, a call it like a listening party where you essentially had these chat rooms that you'd go in and there would be a, uh, an animated DJ, an animated club. And there'd be five DJs on stage and you'd be all these different animated figures and the people in the room would DJ and they would play different songs and you could upvote them. And, and you had these characters and you could, the more points you got, you got different, different characters, but, um, it was it was absolutely amazing. The, the there was a community aspect and there was a music aspect, and it felt like it was going to be where we were starting to have these social networks that were winning around different things. You know, you had Facebook and you had Twitter, but then you had like Foursquare, which was felt like it was going to be around you know locations. And this felt like this was going to be the social network for music, and it was going to be the thing. And it was just e extraordinary for that time. Well, this is the thing that I I got, I got obsessed with, and so I tried to find who the founders were. I found out the company was based in New York and I, I, I figured out a way to get an intro to the founders. And I basically, um, my first startup at IBM was I built a whole side business as a corollary to, to turntable.fm. And it, it did three things. One, we did merch. So we would take all the, the avatars and all the cool things from the, the, the um, game and we would create t-shirts and things that people could buy. And we didn't have a license, but these guys were happy for us building the ecosystem. So they were like, great, you know. Um, second, we would create a, a calendar so you knew when famous people were going to come on Turntable. So what was starting to happen was up-and-coming DJs would show up on, on Turntable to try to, you know, get the word out that they were DJs and they were popular. So um, two of the most notable that got their start there is, um, I don't know if you, do you guys know the DJ Blau? Um, three LAU, right? So Blau got his start on, on turntable. Um, and so did Cruella. Cruella, um, they were like, this was, and so um, I'm actually still friends with, with Justin and from back in the days where we used to like, it was this small community of people and, and that's where his fan base started. Um, and so anyway, so there's a small business and two things happened. One, every day I tried to get them to hire me full time so I could leave IBM. Right. And they they never would. But I became really close with one of the two founders on the business side. And um, and he kind of became like my startup mentor for for kind of the rest, the next however many of parts of my years. But Turntable uh, flamed out because essentially the record industry licensing fees just just crushed them, that it was still at a time where the whole record industry was figuring out streaming and, and moving from Napster to Spotify and all these things were happening. And um, and these guys kind of get got caught in the middle of it. And so when, when Turntable um, kind of died off, it was like, well, what's next? Like, what's my next side project? So at this point, I've been doing so much data work. And now it's like 2011 and end of 2011. 
And at the end of 2011, we had what was the first really seminal moment in what sneaker culture is today, which was the Concord 11 release over Christmas of 2011. And it was the first release in years where we had media coverage on the riots and campouts and just the extraordinary, you know, resale prices and the things that were going on. I mean, there was starting to be coverage. And then three months later, in February of 2012, was the Galaxy Foam release in Orlando, NBA All-Star Weekend. And that was the the that that was the moment where um, the whole industry started to become what it is today, where you know, there was so Nike, it was the first time that Nike was releasing a super highly coveted product. They were they were using Twitter to release it. Um, people were were camped out for days. Uh, the shoes were, you know, someone was like famously offered to trade his car for a pair. Like there were riots and then you were getting into violence and all the bad stuff that had happened. Like this and so so I'm sitting in the middle of this and they're like, what's the business in sneakers? I was like, this whole thing is about to explode and about to become mainstream and and all that. And so my thought was, well, I'm doing all this data work at IBM. I wonder if I get a hold of some sneaker data just to play with my own amusement, just to kind of see what I could do with it because I was doing all this data work. And because the secondary market was still so unstructured and so fragmented, I mean, eBay was the largest marketplace, but you know, to find out what a pair of shoes costs on eBay, you got to go through sold listings and there's fake shoes and you know, you search for a pair of shoes, you know, one guy selling it for 600, one guy selling it for 400. It was just, there's just so much uh, a noise in there. And then Flight Club existed, but everyone knew if you knew that Flight Club was massively overpriced. And so like nobody that really knew sneakers would shop at Flight Club. And it was just, it was the wild, wild west. And so I was like, man, I wonder if we could collect some sneaker data. So I went back to one of my startup partners um, from from tech experts and Servinity and the, on the tech side. And I said, how do I collect eBay auctions? I want to collect every eBay auction and I want to figure out what are shoes worth. And he built a, a format for me. He built a, a model that I could collect them and drop them into a spreadsheet. And I taught myself how to write queries in order to sort through what was good and what was bad and, um, and basically build a price guide for sneakers. And that was the side business. It was called Campless, C-A-M-P-L-E-S-S. And it was a play off the fact that people camp out for shoes. So our very witty tagline was no more camp less. Right. And, um, and that was it. That was it. Just mm-hmm. stop you there. Cause I want to get into obviously what that was and how that went, but you know, it's one of these things where for so long, for so many years, like you mentioned, this was, uh, this was a thing where it was a kind of like a secondary market, like underground, right. It wasn't, it wasn't like you said, there was flight club and there were these establishments, but a lot of people, a lot of friends that I had were just kind of had these contacts in their phone book. And then if they, they get their hands on shoes, yeah. they would hit them up and be like, Hey, I got these shoes. Do you want them? And then these people would meet up and make sure exactly, you know, they're authentic and they're real. And then, you know, they would do the transaction that way. And so why do you think no one had actually built a solution for it? Was it something that was just, it was so fragmented. It was so difficult to solve that someone hadn't figured out a way to, to organize everything. Yeah. So it's, um, it's the exact, right question and when we look back now in retrospect we can see that there were four really seminal moments in sneaker the sneaker industry and sneaker culture that um that effectuated that and they're all different in technology so the first moment is is just 1985 the first air jordans i mean this is the start of of this where you just have massively more demand than there is supply for the shoes um 
but you know this is pre-internet you know so so sneakers become a thing but they're still very very local um it's underground it's local right you know it's it's whatever your 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 sneaker stores 99 2000 is the second big moment now we have the internet ebay um sneakers still largely an underground sort of thing but at least it's like global underground of like yeah it's like niche but i can still find a pair of shoes from someone from japan selling it on ebay the third is the moment i just talked about really 2011 2012 galaxy foam release but this is social media really is what's going on here because now you have the by the way at the end of 2011 is when facebook bought instagram and then instagram is going through its own hockey stick growth and you know that now you have the brands that are leveraging social media nike releasing products via twitter and the brands leveraging instagram but like instagram was the key because all sneakerheads ever wanted is to show off their shoes and see what other people have. And now Instagram allowed everyone to do that globally, and that brought just more people into the market. So now you have, you're essentially going to, now it's it's global and, um, uh, and, and becoming mainstream. But you still don't have a structure in order to, to effectuate access to these products because it's still eBay, there's no real marketplace, we don't know what it's worth. And so now we're in the process of like, or who's gonna build that and who's gonna be able to, to organize the industry? And you know, for us, it started with a price guide, but the, in it, Campus has a price guide, which we launched in 2013, but it was really StockX in 2016 when we launched that. That's the, the, the next big moment because that made it all easy and accessible for anybody to be able to buy or sell if they wanted to buy or sell. It was so hard. There were so many roadblocks. You know, it, the access, it's, it's not just about knowing where to get shoes, but even if you knew that you could get them on eBay, maybe you don't know how to navigate through eBay, or maybe you know how to navigate through eBay, but you don't know what's real, or you know what's real, but you don't know what a fair price is. Like there's so many barriers to be able to buy these products that it should be as dead simple to buy a pair of, of, of Nikes as is to buy a share of Nike. Right. And, and selling it and vice versa. Right. Like and that's the idea of, of StockX and, and the stock market model. So it happened organically. And as the, the technology evolution happened over time. So it kind of made sense of where we were in the ecosystem that no one had done it yet because we weren't there yet. And I'm sure you've gotten this question before, but just kind of for our listeners, why do you think these brands didn't own their own resale market? Why, why didn't yeah. Nike and Adidas? Because they're selling it at retail, which is like, I don't know, let's say call it 180 bucks and then it's flipping for like 2000 or whatever, depending on the shoe. Um, why didn't they capitalize on that on that secondary market? Yeah, this is this is a, a you know, an age old question and um, and one that sneaker brands have always struggled with and thought about. Historically, um, the resale market was um, it was just a, a, a it was a third rail, right? Like they had this very willful blindness policy towards the, the resale market, which is obviously everything. And, you know, up until 2015, it was all Nike and Jordan. It wasn't until Yeezy that Adidas became really relevant on the secondary market. But for Nike, it was obviously everything they did creates a secondary market. Obviously, they benefit from it. But if you had ever asked Nike PR, even today, really, you know, about the resale market, their position is always going to be, it's not us. We have nothing to do with that. You know, we're, you know, we just, we just sell shoes at retail, which is obviously not true. They obviously are very strategic and, and thoughtful about it. But historically, man, there was so much baggage that went along with that, right? 1991 Sports Illustrated cover, your sneakers are your life, you know, a gun and a pair of Jordan fives and people talking about, you know, killing each other for Jordans, all the riots, all the, the bad things that happened. And the brands have done a lot of really great things over the years to, to combat that and, and to make it better. 
but it just wasn't worth it. Like their business was selling retail and the bigger they can make the resale market, the more hype, the more things sell for, it just gave them the opportunity to sell more at retail, which is their core business. So it benefited from them without them having to kind of step into the muck to, to deal with the, you know, the, the craziness of, of the resale market. Josh, as somebody who was so passionate about shoes, um, why didn't you ever want to, you know, whether it was before law school, after law school, why didn't you ever want to work for any of these companies, whether it was Nike or Adidas or Reebok or any of any of them, frankly, you know, champs, you know, for all, for all, for all you know. Um, well, did, did you ever? So I, I you know, I, I mentioned that I had sort of intentionally avoided starting businesses around sneakers. But um, so I, as you guys may know, um, in in October of 2015, I gave a, a TED talk about sneakers, which became, um, you know, pretty well known in the sneaker industry. And. I was asked to come and speak at uh, at Nike. It was actually a, a Jordan leadership offsite. There was about a hundred leaders Beaver. from Nike. It, it was in San Francisco at the Presidio, um, but it was like it was like an offsite for for leadership. So about a hundred leaders from Nike and Jordan there, and um, and this is in January of sixteen, so a month before we launched StockX. And um, so they know me from the TED Talk. They know me from Campless. They probably, I don't know if they knew that we were working on StockX, whatever, but the first slide in the whole deck was, so, you know, you guys know Campus, I'm, I'm a data guy. So here's a chart I want to share with you. And it was two, it was a simple chart on the left-hand side. It said year and the right-hand side, it said, did Josh apply for a job at Nike and get rejected? And it was 1995 through 2010. And it said, yes, 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 yes. Cool. So, I mean, I like it was every kid's dream to, to work at Nike. I mean, I applied every year, every job, every internship, every whatever. And, I, and you know, and I never once got a, got an interview, um, you know, at all. But then I didn't, you know, I was like any other, you know, random kid from, a, you know. So, um, but yeah, like that was every kid's like dream to be able to do that because that was the one like real job in the sneaker industry. Like I wasn't going to go and, and work at, at Foot Locker, um, you know, and uh but if I could get a corporate job at Nike, like, man, how much better to work there than, you know, than IBM or, or somewhere else, but never hired me. So I'm curious for myself and I'm sure there's others that are listening to, that are not sneakerheads. And I was never a sneakerhead growing up, but like Pat said, I had a lot of friends that were, and even now more so a lot of friends that are now uh, more than they were when they were younger. Um, what is it about sneakers that excites people right is it the fact that there's a finite amount is it the design is it the story i mean why are people spending and investing thousands ten thousands millions of dollars i know some people that have probably have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of inventory you probably are one of those people mm. you know what's the, what's the uh pleasure what's the reasoning behind it yeah i i love that question because um, it hits on something about the industry, which is really unique. So sneakers are this very unique product this is for, within the consumer good, goods world that almost everybody has some association with at some point in their life, right? Even if you don't care about the, the hype stuff that is on StockX, but like you wore sneakers as a kid to play sports or, or in gym, um, you... Um, maybe you, you have an association or with athletes that wear certain shoes, um, because, you know, almost everybody wears footwear, right. To some extent, right. So like it, it's, a, you start with that sort of universal truth around that. Then 
you have the different parts of there's a huge nostalgia part of this. And this was, you know, sort of my point around people coming back into the industry around it with Instagram in 2012, where, you know, because you have this whole generation of people that grew up watching Michael Jordan play basketball and and have as their formative, you know, almost ingrained in them, like all the Nike ads and Spike Lee and and Mr. Robinson's neighborhood and and like that whole era where like there was nothing more exciting on TV than a Nike a new Nike commercial right in 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 the 90s. And then there's the 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 functional part of it for people that just want to wear it for for sport. There's a fashion part of it as shoes become more diverse and and you can wear them in more different places. There's an art aspect of it as you know a lot of it is true art in fact you have artists that that do collaborations with brands or people customizing shoes. And then there's the the call it the investment side of it, but just the financial opportunity that comes from things that are uh, that are worth a lot of money. And and then there's the collector aspect of it as well. So it really hits all of these different parts that almost no other consumer good does um, for that. And you know, and that's like kind of at, at the heart of it, right? It's also um, it's also the one product that kind of transcends every cross section of society you know, race, age, economic background, whatever, like I can't, you know, fly in the private jet that Jay-Z has, but man, like we can both be wearing Jordan three black cements, right? Like it's, it's there, there's something about that that is also really just truly universal that as well. So it's, it's extraordinary, but it's, um, it's really true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of, um, kind of going, okay. So going back to you start StockX, I know at some point, um, you met Dan Gilbert and he got involved with the company and all that. So tell us a little bit about those early days what kind of happened? How did the company sort of get its footing and start business? Yeah. Um, I feel like I've kind of stopped, um, telling the story because it's, um, it takes a couple minutes and it's, um, you know, it, it happens long ago, but I feel like, you know, you guys are probably a pretty good, uh, place to, to tell this story again because it's, it's extraordinary and it's how the whole business started. So I'm at IBM, I'm running campus. Campus was real. There was real, um, uh, people that use it were using it like we were clearly onto something. We became the default price guy in the sneaker industry. Like we we were the frankly we were just the only ones doing real analytics around the resale market. But there wasn't a business there, and so I had this idea that if you understood asset pricing, if you understood the value of one pair of sneakers, you could create sneaker portfolios. You could look at your whole sneaker collection the same way you look at a stock portfolio. Frankly, a pretty like obvious application of of value. And then the idea is, well, if you understood asset pricing and you understand portfolio construction, then perhaps you can create an actual stock market for sneakers. And that was the idea. That was the, the, uh, basically the business that I thought you could create on top of campus. And I had this like one piece of paper that essentially had that, that had this sort of these three steps. And I took that piece of paper everywhere. And I met with everybody in the sneaker industry, Nike, eBay, Foot Locker, Complex, like Flick Club, like you name it, everybody. And everybody said, well, that's pretty interesting, right? But what we want to do is this. And we want to take the data at Campus and what you're doing and use it for X, Y, and Z in our business. And fair enough, right? Like I didn't think Nike was going to change our whole business and build a stock market um, for sneakers, right? But the data could be very valuable to Nike and their business, sure. But there was never really a good fit. You know, nobody was really like, yeah, I want, I want to do that. And, um, and so... It's now uh, it's now April of 2015, and um, I get a random call. I get a random email from two guys that say, "Hey, we work with Dan Gilbert. 
really interested in, in what you're doing. Can we talk? And now for people that don't know, Dan is, is most notable for the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Um, he's also the founder and um, chairman of Quicken Loans, which is now the largest mortgage lender in the United States. And there's actually about 100 or so other companies that are part of the Quicken Loans family of companies, most of which are based out of Detroit. And Dan has more or less single-handedly revitalized the whole city of Detroit. So absolutely just an extraordinary you know, business person, um, and, um, and, but has no ties whatsoever to sneakers. I mean... I mean, frankly, it's been like four years and I can't even get him to wear sneakers, but, you know, but, all right. Um, but you, I get an email that Dan wants to talk. So sure. You know, you, you take any call. So I get on the phone with these two guys, not Dan, but his two guys. And man, it is like word for the exact same conversation I'd had a thousand times at this point with everyone else in the industry. I frankly, I didn't really think much of it. And then two days later, these guys email me back to say, listen, we definitely want to do this business. We definitely don't want to work with you. We'd like to fly you to Cleveland to go to a game and meet Dan. And this is the Friday before Easter Sunday, 2015. I'm like, well, the first part of that, it's like, well, whatever. Everybody says they're going to do shit, right? The second half, I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You can fly me a game. No problem, right? I'm a huge basketball fan. You know, I, I'm like, yeah, for sure. And um, so these guys are like, you know, at short notice, could you come on, on Easter Sunday? I was like, I'm Jewish. Absolutely. Like, let's make this thing happen, right? So the one caveat was my wife was 39 weeks pregnant with our second kid. So the plan was, by the way, if this was our first kid, I doubt there's any way this, this goes over. But the plan was to fly in, in the morning. It was a 3.30 p.m. game on Easter Sunday in Cleveland. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. So we fly in, in the morning. And the plan was fly in the morning, go to the game, and fly right back home that night. So we get there. We kind of make small talk during the game. And then after the game, we go in this private owner's room with me, Dan, and his two guys. And I take out the, the piece of paper that's got this plan and I, I share with these guys and they look at me with pure shock and it doesn't really register to me why or what's going on. And then one of them reaches in the pocket and he pulls out a piece of paper and is like, yeah, we have one of those. That is exactly what we want to build, a stock market for sneakers. And I was like, oh, so like the crazy backstory of this company is that there's maybe one other guy in the whole world that had the exact same idea at the exact same time. And it happens to be one of the most successful business people in the world. Like, like what the fuck? Like it's so crazy for so many reasons, right? So we're having this very serendipitous moment. And Dan's like, well, you got to come back to Detroit. You know, you got to come there and see everything and meet everybody. And again, this is Sunday. And I was like, well, my week's pretty light this week at IBM. You know, I'm sure I could come, you know, whenever. And, uh, and so, um, so his assistant takes out his phone and he's like, how about like Dan's got time on like Tuesday, Wednesday, Dan's like, put that away. Why don't you come back with us right now? And I was like, uh, okay. So like I, I text IBM. I'm like, not showing up at work tomorrow. Sorry. Text my wife. I'm like, please don't go into labor. All right. So I, I go with those, these guys back to Detroit. Um, we, uh, all day Monday, they take me on tour of the city, all Dan's businesses, you know, meeting with people, you know, Monday afternoon back in Dan's office. And he's like, listen, he's like, this is amazing. He's like, but we'd really like you to, to stay and keep talking. Can you stay tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Why not? Right. Text IBM. I text my wife. I'm like, please don't kill me. Right? I wore the same clothes for, for three days. Like if I had stayed any longer, I was going to have to go to Target and get some underwear or something. But I literally wore the same clothes. So finally, end of the day, Tuesday, back in Dan's office, after spending two full days with these guys, and they're like, listen, we think this is the right fit. We want to buy Campus. We want you to come here and run the company. And they finally let me go home. I get home. It's like 1 a.m. on Tuesday night. And I get home. My wife, who thankfully hadn't given birth, is uh, is waiting up for me. And I walk in the door. And I'm like, I was like, I, I think we're moving to Detroit. And she's like, 
what the hell? I thought you went to Cleveland. So <laughs> that was the short version of what was just an extraordinary couple of days and ended up being just a microcosm for how crazy the whole thing was going to be. But, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, I ended up selling campus to Dan and becoming partners with him in turning campus as the data layer into StockX as the marketplace. And, um, Jack, I'm, yeah. I'm a bit of a skeptic. So, you know, when you tell me that story, the question that I have is why the hell did Dan Gilbert have the same idea as you, right? Yep. Like where did that come from? Or did he get that idea through hearing about it from some of these people that you had shared it with previously and he just kind of stuck to him and he's like, fuck it. I'm going to put it on a piece of piece of paper as well. Or if I meet this Josh Luber guy, I'm going to tell him I had the same idea too. Right. Cause that's yeah. what I would be thinking. I'm like, how the hell does somebody have this idea? Who's an owner of a basketball team? Sure. He's dealing with people that have sneakers and are probably into sneaker culture, but I'm going to kind of doubt it. This guy's like a corporate dude, right? Uh -huh. Like it doesn't make much sense to me. Right. So I mean, no, is that something you were thinking? It doesn't, but um, but the way we got there is is um, is uh, but, so here's the thing, right? So yeah, Dan's got no ties to sneakers whatsoever. But Dan, and by the way, this is kind of the difference between you know billionaires and and the rest of us. I came to the idea very ground up in sneakers my whole life. Love sneakers, you know, build a price guy, and I was like, man, this would work really well for sneakers. Dan has always been fascinated by markets and the stock market and the efficiencies of markets. And he had always had this idea around a stock market of things that you could buy or sell anything the same way the stock market works. And then he was exposed to sneakers through one of his sons. He's got five kids, four sons. And one of his sons, who was about 15 years old at the time, had been buying and selling sneakers on eBay, like every other 15-year-old kid in 2015. Dan took a closer look at that and said, well, that's a pretty crappy market leader, eBay. And that'd be a perfect product to start a stock market. So Dan actually goes out, independent of me, doesn't know anything about me, and he put together a team to start working on a sneaker stock market. Now, in a, uh, between all of Dan's businesses, there's a bunch of startups as well. And there was this really great startup team that uh, a, 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 basically a CEO, product guy, designer, and two developers that had ran this startup. Dan had put some money in. It didn't work out. They were shutting it down. And Dan said, hey, like I, the, your team's great. Like, why don't, like, I want to build, I want to start a sneaker stock market. And none of these guys know shit about sneakers. But if Dan Gilbert says, hey, I want to build a business with you, then you consider it. So these four guys start working on this business with Dan. And they get two, three weeks into it and realize, well, crap, we need a sneaker guy. Who's a sneaker guy that's going to help us run the sneaker stock market? So in their work, they're using Campless to size the market. Like we, we were the first people to size the market. Again, we were just the only ones doing real analytics on, on, on the market. So they're like, well, we should call up this guy and see what, what he knows. So we get in the room and it turns out the sneaker guy is also trying to build a sneaker stock market. Like the, the level of serendipity of that's why it was so crazy because they thought they were going to have to like convince me to that like a sneaker stock market is the way to, to go and that they were going to have to convince me to, to go and do this business. And they didn't, you know, first of all, it turns out that the, the sneaker guy is also a JD MBA and worked at IBM and started three companies. and isn't just like some random guy, but also that I had the same idea, you know, we're both sitting there being like, how am I going to convince this other, the other person that to create a sneaker stock market? So yeah, the whole thing was nuts, but it was, it was sort of very organic of sort of top down because again, Dan coming top down, I'm, you know, bottom up and, and I'm like, yeah, this should work really well for sneakers. And he's like, no, 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 this should be like how the whole world works. This should be like how all e-commerce works. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm on board with that. 
Like, let's go build that. And that was always the idea from day one. That's why the company is called StockX and not SneakerX. It was always about the model. It was always about this unique stock market of things model. And it happened to be that we started with sneakers and it doesn't change my love for sneakers or how successful we are in that. But the big, big idea of StockX is like sneakers are just a, you know, just a, a bullet point on it. It's really about what you can do with this, for lack of a less kind of cliche way of saying it, this truly revolutionary e-commerce model that genuinely doesn't exist anywhere in the world outside the actual stock market. And that's the business. That That's really what StockX is. So you launched this platform and with any you know marketplace business, it's like this chicken and egg thing, right? Like you have your products and then you have your you have your sellers and you have your buyers, right? And it's kind of hard sometimes to figure out like who do I who do I focus on getting first onto the platform because without product, no one's going to buy, and yep. w- without um, you know people buying, then no one's going to sell. So how did you tackle that issue from the beginning? How did like what was your approach to this chicken and egg thing? Yeah, I mean, look, you highlight a really really important thing, which is that you know marketplace businesses are are perhaps the hardest business in the history of the internet, right? I mean, the chicken and the egg thing is, is very real. And then, um, you know, it still doesn't really work until you have a certain amount of liquidity and a certain amount of, of supply and demand that you can only build in, in lockstep. But for us, one, it was one of the really important reasons of why I think they were interested in me and Campus because we already had a community of, I think, about 40,000, you know, registered users that were had signed up for for the price guide and what we were doing. It was free, but um, but we had that that community and I had, I don't know, whatever it is, 15, 20,000 followers on, on you know, Twitter for Campless. So there were, there were some community already. But we were entering a marketplace at the time that we were very fortunate to, one, we were selling the most highly coveted products in the world, right? We didn't have to convince a single person to buy a pair of Jordans. I mean, even today, Jordans, Yeezys, Rolex, Supreme, Louis Vuitton, like, we don't have to convince anybody to buy any of that stuff. For us, it's about creating the access that makes it easy to buy, buy or sell them. So that's a good starting point. And second, we were entering the sneaker market at a time where there really wasn't much competition. You know, eBay was the largest marketplace. Flight Club existed, but if you knew, you weren't paying Flight Club prices. And there's a, a competitor now that's called Goat. Goat launched a couple months ahead of us, but they were also basically brand new. And so we were going into an ecosystem where the sellers are for the most part, some version of a small business. The sellers in the sneaker industry are, you know, they may or may not love sneakers, but but they're doing this as their business. And so they're always looking for where are the different channels that they can sell, where the different, like they're, they're on that. So between the user base we had, knowing that we were selling a highly coveted product and knowing that of how the seller behaviors were, all of our focus in the beginning was on buyers. Like if we can get buyers, that's the greatest thing that we can do. The greatest value we can give to the sellers is to bring them buyers. And so that was the starting point in the beginning. It was all buyer marketing, knowing that, you know, sellers would be looking for ways to sell it and that we already had a little bit of a, of a foothold in there. As you grow and as you scale, you know, there's, we now have a, a huge marketing team and budget and, and we have seller marketing and buyer marketing. It, it becomes a lot more, there's a lot more to it. But in the beginning, for us, it was it was really this focus on buyers. Did you know from the get-go when you met Dan Gilbert and you guys had this almost meeting of the minds uh, that this was going to be a successful project? So we never could have imagined what it would become. Like anyone who would tell you that when they're starting a company, they know they're going to build a you know, a billion dollar company in three years is, I mean, just lying, like clearly, 
But we didn't make this up. Like the whole stock market, like all we've been doing at every step in the whole company is just copying the stock market. And the stock market has been the most efficient form of commerce for 150 years. So the hypothesis was pretty good, right? Like the, the, where we got to the serendipity that we both thought that the stock market model would work well for this particular product. And the reasons why we thought it would work well, because, uh, you know, a, a, a brand new pair of Air Jordan 1, you know, Travis Scott, size 10, like that's a commodity. You don't have to have pictures right. and descriptions and show receipts. Like, no, like, like that's a commodity. And so for all the reasons why we were really confident in, in the, the idea and the hypothesis. Now, all of the, the risk is then on the execution risk of, of can you actually build it? Can you create a business that you can use the stock market and get 14-year-old kids to buy and sell Jordans and Yeezys on there without having to teach 14-year-old kids how the stock market works, right? That was a challenge. If we had to do that, that was an uphill battle. We probably weren't going to win. But again, go back to the, 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 the premise that we're selling those highly coveted products in the world. That 14-year-old kid, he wants those Jordans so bad, he probably will go to, to you know, math class and figure out how to use a, a stock market if he has to because he really, really wants those shoes. So all that is – it felt like a, a really good thing, but obviously we couldn't have thought it would be like this. You said something that actually uh, one, of our, one of our most recent guests, Jim McKelvey, who's the um, co-founder of Square and he's created a bunch of different companies um, – you know, obviously built a billion dollar company as well. And he talked about how, you know, everybody always thinks they have to go out and do something brand new, right? Like they have to go and innovate and go invent something. But he's like, literally, he's like most entrepreneurs and most of these successful companies, they're just a people copying other people. And they just keep iterating on those copying things that they're already copying. And they just keep copying. And then at one point, you know, they change something up and then they keep copying, right? Like, and it sounds like StockX is literally just a series of copies of the stock market and eBay and, you know, all these other things that already existed, but they hadn't been really brought together. So, you know, when I, found, I, th I think I first found out about StockX from Pat actually, and, you know, when he explained it, it was just very simple. Also, right? the like, time when I really start, you know, I got fascinated by the concept was, I think when you guys announced the IPO, which mm -hmm. was like the initial product where you guys had this sort of blind Dutch auction, is it blind Dutch auction mm -hmm. model, right? Or that yep. kind of like the Google AdWords which um, I was like, holy shit, I've never seen something like that happen with products before. So right. um, for those who have, don't know about that, I would encourage you to check it out because it's really awesome. Um, but, you know, kind of talking about StockX um, specifically going, I know at some point, I think it was in 2019 last year, you decided to leave the company, step down as CEO, right? Not leave the company, but step down as CEO. Yeah, I'm still at the company, but yeah, but yeah, I, I replaced myself as CEO. What, what sort of, the, what was the reason behind that? Yep. Um, well, okay. So real quick to the last point on, on sort of iteration of business models and, and copying, like ideas are worthless. Like execution is the only thing that matters, right? Like I, ideas are a dime a dozen. Nothing is a, is a new idea really. So I agree with that a hundred percent. Um, on, uh, on the IPO model, um, we should talk more about that. That is, I think the most interesting thing that we've done in the entire business and, and is not only the future of stock X, but I, I think, the future of all e-commerce for certain products. I mean, that is the real, that is the real innovation that, it, that is happening. But, you know, for me, um, you know, I, I replaced myself as CEO about a year ago now. Um, we brought on a guy whose name is Scott Cutler. Scott was um, actually an investor in our very first round. Um, Dan did the seed round, but our very first external round. And at the time, Scott was the CEO of StubHub. 
And before that, he was one of the leaders of the New York Stock Exchange. And after that, he was um, basically the number two guy at eBay. And so Scott has this really unique background that it literally is exactly what StockX is. And, um, and so he's been one of our closest advisors for the past couple of years as we've grown. And frankly, we never thought we'd be in a, a place big enough to, to hire someone like Scott. But once we got to you know, a billion dollar company and a thousand people and, and it was like, all right, like this thing is, is certainly on track to become a public company to, to keep scaling and, and become a multi-billion dollar company. Um, the question was, you know, who's the right person to scale it? And um, I'm a I'm a startup guy, like you know, um, and so it was a pretty easy decision to do that. I mean, we we you know myself and and Greg Schwartz, who is the, was the COO, he's still the COO, and third co-founder were Dan and myself. So Dan was obviously not running the company day to day, but Greg and I were running the company day to day up until we hired Scott. And um, and so for us, we were super excited that we could hire someone like him. And, um, and the whole, whole goal was to take us, you know, and continue to scale the company. And so it was great. So it allows me to go back and do the startup within a startup thing. So two things that I spend most of my time on today are new product categories, most specifically uh, trading cards, which I think can frankly be maybe the biggest category in, in the whole company for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then IPOs and then initial product offerings working with brands. These are the two like future of StockX, like really big, big ideas, um, things that, um, you know, today we still have to figure out how to, how to open up more authentication centers around the world and how to sell, a, you know, a million more shoes in China and on all the things that, that we just have to do from the, the core business. Um, but when you think about like the future vision of what this thing becomes, so it's fun. So I get to work on that stuff and, and Scott can, can figure out um, with the rest of the team, you know, how to, how to really scale the business. And Josh, you know, I, I recently found out about this whole trading card trend coming back, you know, in the last year or so. Um, and, you know, there was that whole LeBron James card selling for upwards of a million plus. I don't remember the exact amount right now. Yeah, it was like 1.8 1. 1. 1. million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, which is, uh, in my opinion, it's really, really ridiculous. But it was a steal. Was I like, if, if I had more money, if I had more money, I would absolutely have been in there buying it. I think, yeah, I think it was a steal. Why, why, so. why though? Why though? Tell me why. Like, how the hell does that little piece of paper, how is it worth $1.8 million? Why is a, a little stone like this that we call a diamond worth $1.8 million? Like, you know, like, it, it's, exactly it's, like- just a, it's just supply and demand. I mean, it's just supply and demand. There's a, there's a couple of really key things. One, trading cards have become true assets in every sense, right? So I don't know if you're familiar, but, you know, the, the trading card industry crashed in the 90s, but... Then we started, they started grading companies where you can send your card to a company and they will grade it. And now you know the condition. So this is a, you know, it's a a Zion Williamson, you know, rookie in a a grade 10, which is the highest grade. What that did is it standardized cards. It turned them from memorabilia or a collectible into an asset because now I can sell you that Zion uh, rookie 10 without you ever having to look at it, inspect it, whatever. It, it's the same thing as me selling you a, a share of Nike stock or a pair of, of dead stock Travis Scott ones. Like it, it, and once that happened, we you put trading cards on the path to become uh, a mut, to, to basically come back. And now it's just supply and demand. So the, th- the cards are worth money. They're very liquid. And the amount of supply that exists is still so small to the number of people that might want to own these cards. The LeBron rookie that, that, that sold for $1.8 million, there's only 23 of that card that exists. 
It's a special card from his rookie year. He signed it. It's got a piece of, of his jersey in the card. It's a very like extraordinary card. There's only 23 that exist, and there's only about five or six that exist in that high of a grade, in that good of a condition. So it is so rare that it, it's, it's like buying a work of art. It's like buying a, you know, a Picasso painting or, or something. But like, who doesn't like LeBron more than Picasso, right? Like, it's, you know, like how many people might possibly want to own a LeBron rookie? By the way, so that card is extraordinary because it's, it's 1.8 million and there's only 23 of them. LeBron's kind of like most notable rookie. Uh, a year ago, sold for $1,000. A month ago was going for ten thousand. Uh, right now, it's going for about fifteen thousand, and by the end of the season, it's going to be probably twenty-five thousand. By next year, it's probably a hundred thousand. This card, there are less than two thousand that exist. There's nineteen hundred and seventy something that exist in in the highest grade. Two thousand. I mean, there's two thousand LeBron fans on my block. Like it is the the disparity between the number of people that might want to own a LeBron card versus how many that exist is so great, right? And you combine that the the way that the demand has been growing is a lot of ways, but at the core is you have this entire generation of American males that grew up collecting cards. That was their first business, which is why we we started with this. It was my first business that now have some money that you could spend ten dollars or $20,000 on some cards, buy that Michael Jordan rookie that you could never afford when you were a 10-year-old. But now also it's an investment, it's an asset. So it's really easy to spend ten grand on a card if you think of it as, well, I could buy this or I could buy IBM stock, right? As opposed to I can buy this or I can buy you know, uh, whatever, a pair of shoes or clothes. Like If you put it in that category, it's really hard to spend $20,000 on consumer goods. But it's just a different asset class. But it is a true right. asset, and that's the important thing. And then the last piece of, of demand is that that whole generation of American men who are now getting back into cards and who went to card shops with their fathers when they were 10 years old now have 10-year-old sons, and they're taking their 10-year-old sons to card shops now. So like, it's come full circle. So there's so many people that are coming into the market every day, and it's still really, really early, even though – the market is on fire and, and extraordinary right now. So like, I think that in the next 18 months, you will hear more about cards than any other thing in culture and commerce. And, you know, in, in two years, Vanguard's going to have trading card mutual funds. Like it's going to be that level. I mean, it, it's a true asset in, in every sense. And, and but, but it's also like a blast and it'd be fun to be collecting cards again like I, I did when I was 12. You mentioned, yeah, you mentioned like art being like the OG, you know, resale market back in the day. I mean, even though that's, I mean, it still is and it's, 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 it is more, more regulated, I think, but we're starting to see these like products becoming at that level in terms of, you know, what they're being sold for and, and, yeah. you know, uh, crazy. But Josh, do you think like, you know, how art has like provenance where you know who owned it before you for the most part, you know, mm -hmm. will that happen? shoes and, and, and trading cards because or, or even watches for that matter you know where you know well i think watches probably exists a bit more because i think that also increases the value knowing that for example i don't know um lebron james owns like a kobe card or something of mm -hmm. that nature right and it buys it off of him that just helps the value of that card increase knowing that it was in his possession like just like art is do you think that we'll see a day where that is true we might see it with some of the really rare things like the, the LeBron that just sold for 1.8 million. Like we know who had it before, you know, we, because it was, um, but 
I don't think it's as important as the fact that um, you have these grading companies, grading card companies that are in the middle of the industry that, you know, they've been around for 20 years. So they're, they operate really well. And, and the leader, which is called PSA is, um, is a, is a public company. I mean, it, it's, you know, so the, the standardization, the regulation, the assurance, everything around that, because they're checking the card is real. It hasn't been altered. It's, you know, and it's kitchen condition is supposed to be, that's what makes it so valuable. You don't need certificate of authenticities or, or, you know, chain of, of providence as so you do an art because what you're really doing in art is you really are, are trying to verify that what you have is, is real and it's not, you know, some sort of, of counterfeit piece, particularly when you're spending, you know, millions of dollars. Whereas in cards, we have the grading card companies, which, which regulate that, which is why I said like that, that changed everything is, is grading. And, and that's why this is, is enabled it. What do you think beyond trading cards are the next thing that we will see? Like, you know, whether maybe it's in the next three to five years, right? You, you've seen sneakers, watches have always been something that increases in value, art, trading cards. What's next? I mean, what else are people collecting now that in a decade or so we're going to see as something that becomes the next sneaker culture? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like I said, the, the, I was right about two things in my life and happened to be the things I was most uh, passionate about as a 12-year-old is, is cards and um uh, and sneakers. So I don't know if you, if you went in that, that, I don't know. Uh, what did I like? Oh, is I, what, what else did I like as a 12 year old? Right. Is that, is that the, no, um, you know, it, honestly, you I, I, I don't know how you can, you know, I don't know if that's going to increase in value in terms of collectibles yeah. or anything like that. <laughs> no. Um, you know, honestly, this is probably the, the right transition to talk a little bit more about IPOs because, um, the, the products and the categories themselves, you know, um, emerge as, as they do. And, and I don't have any real, um, you know, knowledge of, of, uh, of that beyond like with things we're focused on, but I will say that, um, the trend to so what IPO facilitates is it facilitates brands releasing products directly into the secondary market. It facilitates brands releasing products at a market value at a true market value rather than a retail price, which is often arbitrary, right? I mentioned the Travis Scott Jordan ones a few times. Travis Scott Jordan 1's retailed at 175 bucks. The second they released, they were selling for $1,500 on StockX. What kind of like backwards, like antiquated process sells a $1,500 asset for $175 and then just relies on mass chaos in order to distribute it? Because who wouldn't buy a $1,500 asset if it only costs $175? Everybody. So the right way to sell that asset is by letting the market set the price. Now, that's a massive shift. That is a massive change in how consumer goods are sold and have been sold for all of the eternity. So it's not without you know, significant pause that you say of, of how we're going to change the industry that way. But it's right. And, and it's objectively right. And this goes back to, you know, like ideas are, are they're not new. Like we're just copying how the market prices assets. That's it. We've copied the stock market for IPOs and using a blind Dutch auction to come to a fair price for these products. And so it is just objectively better for products that are supply and demand constrained to understand that. So that I think we're going to see is the biggest change that happens in the next couple of years. And IPO will be a part of it. But just generally, the, 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 the blurring of the lines between primary market and secondary market, right? There's just one market. Because the consumer does not care. They don't care if they buy it from Nike or Foot Locker or StockX. They just want that pair of shoes. And the best industry that we can look to that is sort of is already doing this is ticketing. 
And this is, by the way, also why it was extraordinary to find Scott Cutler, who was the CEO of StubHub, because in the ticketing industry, you know, it used to be that, um, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if tickets were sold out, then you had to go to a secondary market and figure out how to get it or, or go to scalpers on the street. And teams in league used to arrest ticket scalpers and shut down ticketing websites. But now StubHub is the official resale marketplace of Major League Baseball. The teams and leagues said, why are we fighting the scalping industry? We should be a part of it. Like, like your question earlier around how the sneaker companies, you know, why aren't they getting involved in the resale market for their own benefit? And the way that the, the leagues and teams realize the best way to do that is to focus on that customer experience. The customer just wants the ticket. So today, if you go to, to yankees.com and you want to buy some Yankees tickets and it's sold out, there will be a link right there that says, hey, sold out but available on StubHub and click this button and you can buy the exact ticket that you wanted because the customer doesn't care. They just want that ticket to that game. And so the leagues and the secondary market led by StubHub said, we're going to put this together and create this. And so now if you buy a pair, uh, if you buy tickets on StubHub, it could come from the team. It could come from the league. It could come from a scalper, come from a guy down the street and you don't care. You only get that. And that we're going to see that through the rest of e-commerce. And we're trying to lead that with the products that we sell. Right. But we're just going to see that across the board because that's what the consumer wants and that's what the Internet enables. And you can't I mean, you just can't stop that like that. That's where it's going to lead. So I think that's what's going to be the, the big trend and, and why I think IPO is such a powerful mechanism, why I think it ultimately becomes you know, really the heart of, of this industry. Josh, do you think brands will eventually launch directly on StockX without even having any of their own platforms? So if I'm a new brand, right, Pat and I have a new I don't know, backpack company, and we're going to make a hundred every quarter, whatever the hell. I don't know what it's going to be called, right? We launch it directly IPO. We collaborate with another artist or whatever. It's, you know, backpack X mm -hmm. future, right? Yep. And we go directly to StockX. We don't even have our own website, literally directly on StockX. Is oh, that yeah. something that StockX wants? Is that something StockX is going to support? Do you think we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming decade? Uh, a thousand percent. That's exactly what happens, right? Um, you know, so much to, to the fact that, um, you know, we don't do it yet again. You know, the core business is, is the core business. And there's a lot of work to be done to make sure that that experience is great and we can scale and we can sell sneakers everywhere in the world. But, you know, we'll get to a point where not only will brands do that, but we'll help them, right? We'll help them start and, and know that they can they can start their brand and have a, a distribution channel for day one to be able to do that. Um, and to tap into our millions of users and our ecosystem because we view StockX as, and the IPO model as truly as a direct-to-consumer tool for the brands. It's still their product and they get the market value for it. We take a percentage because we're the marketplace that facilitates it, but it's not a wholesale relationship where we're paying a price and we get to charge whatever we want. Like, no, like you're selling it to the market and we're just the market. In the same way that the New York Stock Exchange is not a retail channel, it's just the market that facilitates bringing together buyers and sellers. Like that's all we do at every transaction is just bring together buyers and sellers. And no offense to Shopify, but I mean, essentially what you're saying will become a better Shopify because yeah. not only you're giving them a platform, but you're giving them the audience, which Shopify doesn't give you. I'm building my website there and I'm building my, you know, whole e-commerce, whatever business, but I still have to go get the audience with StockX. Sure. You still have to go get the audience. Like it doesn't hurt but you already have an existing audience there. I mean, do you think that there's ever going to be some sort of collaboration between the two, like Shopify, StockX? I mean, will there potentially be 
some, you know, I don't know whether it's a merger acquisition, whatever the case may be, like, or would you guys just independently build your own thing? Well, um, we don't think too much about Shopify as a competitor, um, but you can, the best way to think about it is, um, you know, Shopify is, is enables these brands to be able to have websites, but those brands still have to drive people to those websites. Right. And, and the, by the way, there's a lot of value of having your own website and, um, and for, for many reasons. Um, but you know, for us, like just being the marketplace where we can bring the most people together, um, there's just more efficiencies that happen, right? Like, you know, if you were to go on to, to eBay and search for, you know, Travis Scott ones, there'll be a thousand people selling that shoe. You know, one guy's 400, one guy's 500 and you got to figure it out. But you know, if you want to buy a share of Nike stock, there's one ticker symbol for Nike and every bid and every ask and every transaction happens at that one place. And that's what leads to the efficiency and the transparency and to be able to get a fair market price. And that's what a marketplace can do when you get to scale. But that's why, you know, we mentioned earlier, you know, around, you know, why marketplaces are hard and liquidity and get to that. But once you get to that, there's just a lot more value in there. So yeah, there, like there's value in, in having someone's own own website. And so maybe there's a natural synergy. I don't know. Never really thought about that way. Um, but for us, you know, it, again, it, it's really just facilitating that, you know, that that sale between buyer and seller. What do you think about the NBA season coming back? I know we're recording this today. This is today's when it starts. We won't be releasing today. But uh, do you think that they should be coming back? Are you excited? I know you're a Sixers fan. I assume that's um, what's behind on your hat. I'm so excited for so many reasons. One, as a fan. Two, as a trading card collector and investor, because like the the whole market has just been on fire just from the announcement. Once they're back on the court, because um, that really what trading cards are is um, it's a real time you know stock in a in players. And when the player that you've invested in is still playing, you can see the movement happen real time. Right? This happened, by the way. Uh, a couple of days ago when there was a scrimmage where Bull Bull had like 18 points and like three blocks, his cards went up like 10 X because of that. It was a scrimmage of like one game. Now, to be fair, his cards were like 50 cents before that. And they went up to like five bucks, but you know, there was still this mass run where everybody was like, Oh, he's the next guy. And we're going to go buy it. And his cards will probably go back to, to normal when he has, you know, like, you know, one and four in the next game. But like, it's extraordinary to watch, like, you know, Playoffs be out there. Luca have a triple double, and like you know, his cards will rise. Um, and so it's really fun to watch the market if you're into trading cards and you know sports. So for all those reasons, it's um it's super exciting to have it back. And I was, as I'm sure you guys, uh, super super optimistic to see when they said on all the COVID tests they haven't had one positive test in all the NBA. And compare that to Major League Baseball, where basically everyone's tested positive for COVID in, in baseball at this point. Like you know. except for that one guy that went to the strip club, apparently. Well, yeah, right, right. Positive. Williams. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyways, it's gonna be good to see. But uh, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for for taking the time to hang out with us and share your story. It's incredible what you built, and uh, we can't wait to see what happens next. Not just with StockX, but with you. Um, and hopefully we can keep in touch. And we would love to have done this in person. I know we were gonna do yeah. it last year, but um, it was a long time coming. I know we made it happen. Glad we made it happen. Um, and so appreciate it, man. Awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you guys having me on. I, I love getting to talk about the, the the fun part of this and not just answer questions like what's my favorite sneaker. So this is a, this is great, man. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks, Josh. Josh.